This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 16, Classical Greek Culture. of them. First there were the Titans, after there were the Olympians. Central to the Olympian gods is Zeus. Zeus has come up a number of times in this podcast and this tells us two things. Firstly, that Zeus was prominent among the pantheon of Greek gods and that he was at the forefront of Greek minds and myths. Secondly, it demonstrates how widespread and far-reaching the Greek culture was, and to a degree still is. The Greeks not only touched many societies, but they also influenced them with their advanced academia. The mythological first king of Crete, King Minos, was the son of Zeus. The most beautiful woman in the world, Helen of Troy, also known as Helen of Sparta, mentioned in the works of Homer, is the daughter of Zeus. The mythological Greek hero Heracles, Romanized as Hercules, whose name is given to the cities such as the Egyptian city of Heracleopolis, the pillars of Hercules representing the Straits of Gibraltar, and who is linked to other cultures' deities such as the Phoenician deity Melkart, is also the son of Zeus. The ancient Olympic Games were created in honour of Zeus. Greek polis would send their elite athletes to the Olympic Games and this was regardless of political tensions and relationships. So this suggests that there was a strong element of religious motivation for the honour of the Olympic Games. It was not just a celebration but an obligation and it uniquely linked the Greek-speaking world and it represents a value which we may historically look back on as Greekness. Another aspect of superstition which linked the Greek-speaking societies together, and something whose origins are deeply rooted in mythology, is the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle of Delphi was a priestess called the Pythia, and as the Oracle she would prophesize about the future and those who visited her would take notice. She could be found at the settlement called Delphi, at the Temple of Apollo, named after the Olympian god of the sun, Apollo, who in mythology slaughtered the Python, the serpent that lived in the centre of the earth at the place that would come to be known as Delphi. No surprise to find out that the father of Apollo was none other than Zeus. Indeed, when the man called Chelon decided to try and overthrow the aristocratic rulers of Athens in the 7th century BCE, 
he declared that it was on the advice of the Oracle of Delphi. Likewise, in the century previous, when the forgotten sons of Sparta were denied citizenship after the Mycenaean Wars, they consulted the Oracle of Delphi for advice and were told to leave Sparta and venture overseas, which resulted in the founding of Taras on the Italian peninsula. Although we don't see the same monarchical style of rule that we so commonly associate with other kingdoms and empires from both ancient and classical times around the world, it does seem like priesthood played an important role in the day-to-day societies of ancient Greece and that temple building was seen as something important to the people running the states. So we see that the construction and subsequent reconstructions of the temple of Athena on the Acropolis of Athens as something very important to the Athenians. Athena was a goddess who was the protectress of the city of Athens and you will not be remotely surprised to discover that her father was Zeus. The temples of Greek lands are a testament to the architectural style and skill of Greek societies. On the Ionian lands of Anatolia, at the city of Ephesus, an amazing temple was built during the 6th century BCE in honour of the Greek goddess Artemis. The temple took 10 years to construct and was thanks to the planning of a Cretan architect from the ancient city of Knossos called Chersiphron. The temple was so impressive that it would be named as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. While we're at it, I wonder if any of you would like to take a guess as to who Artemis' father is. Yes, once again, it's Zeus. Quite possibly, the most famous temple architecture of ancient Greece can still be seen to this day. It is the Parthenon, which stands on the Acropolis of Athens. As with the other temples mentioned, it demonstrates the iconic columns that are a feature of many classical and indeed neoclassical buildings across the globe. If you recall from back in episodes 13 and 14, Athens, under the guidance of the chief politician Pericles, was Athens in a golden age. And the Parthenon was a construction of this period. The temple was built in honour of the Athenian goddess Athena and was also the home of the Delian League's treasury after its completion. The architects were Ictinus and Callicrates, but they were ably assisted by a sculptor called Phidias, who designed the statues of Athena enclosed. Phidias has been described as one of the, if not the, greatest Greek sculptor. It was also in the 430s BCE that Phidias created a great statue of Zeus, which would be erected in the Temple of Zeus at Olympia on the Peloponnese. We know this site for being home of the ancient Olympic Games, So with all of this information of Greek mythology, the Interpolis pantheon of gods, religious festivals such as the Olympic Games, 
spiritual superstitions and glorious temples and statues, we can really get a sense of what was important to these societies. Just like the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, the statue of Zeus at Olympia is also included as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Pottery Historians are thankful for pottery. Fired clay has been in use by human societies since prehistory and the fact that it is extremely inexpensive to produce and that it preserves quite well over time. Really, it helps us to give us clues about the lives of historic peoples where writing does not otherwise exist. We have already discussed how ceramic ware was a big indicator about the affluence and population of Dark Age Greece, where we saw a decline in the quality of ceramics after the Mycenaean period and following the devastating Late Bronze Age collapse. However, with the emergence of ancient Greek cultures, we can certainly see a wonderful flourishing of beautiful ceramic ware. Greek pottery was created with a number of purposes in mind, with various elegant shapes, but the main feature would have to be the colour of the decoration. Around 1000 BCE, the earliest archaic societies were creating pots with a very basic decorative pattern referred to as proto-geometric style. These decorations were skillfully made, but they would make way for some very intricate geometric patterns which marked the geometric style. The predominantly geometric designs would be replaced by animal imagery in a phase called the Orientalizing period, when Aegean and Asiatic influences filtered into Greek works. It is this influence which gave the Greeks more confidence at developing the vivid imagery for which the ancient Greeks are most well known for. We can begin to see these huge vases and similar with incredible images of human interaction and mythological figures. The black figure pottery perhaps originated in Corinth, while red figure pottery originated in Athens. The pottery of ancient Greece is a testament to the talent and development of techniques and describing it now really doesn't do it justice. So I encourage you to visit the History of the World podcast website where you can visit a link that displays some fine examples of the works being generated in the Greek lands around two and a half thousand years ago. You can find it in the links section. Scribes Art in Greece wasn't just restricted to visual pleasures. There were also great developments in things such as the performing arts instigated by playwrights. When you consider that the Athenian aristocracy was a set of families who would try to preserve their lifestyle of leisure pursuits, then the opportunity to enjoy entertaining performances would be a pleasure to look forward to and the best performances would require the best performers performing the best written scripts. As we are already aware, the Persians invaded the Balkan Peninsula on two occasions, once in 490 BCE and again in 480 BCE. Athens was a very central part of both invasions and Athens could be argued to be the most culturally advanced Greek polis of all, 
with many cultural aspects flourishing. At least from the Pisistratid period of the previous century, there was a performing arts festival which took place in Athens each year, and the festival was called the Great Dionysia. It was named after and held in honour of the Greek god of wine, Dionysus. You may or may not be surprised to learn that Dionysus' father was Zeus. One man who was involved in the battles which were a consequence of the Persian invasions was Aeschylus. By the time of the battles, Aeschylus was already known as one of the notable participants in the Great Dionysia. However, it would be after his experiences of battle that Aeschylus would write his most famous work, a tragedy called The Persians. This play would win the Great Dionysia in the year 472 BCE and the chorus who were the performers who were sponsored by the future prominent statesman of Athens, Pericles. Aeschylus actually won the award for the best tragedy at the Great Dionysia on a number of occasions. Other famed tragedians who won the Great Dionysia include Sophocles and Euripides. Alongside the tragedies performed at the Great Dionysia were comedies as written by comic writers such as Aristophanes. However, when it comes to Greek scribes, we would be obliged to discuss those writers who have given us so much and without them, certainly the content of this very podcast would have been very bare by comparison. We have compared the two historians, Herodotus and Thucydides, in a previous episode. Herodotus has been called the father of history, due to him being the earliest major historian of the Greek-speaking world. However, he has been heavily criticised as a man who relies a lot on fantasy and mythology in his storytelling. What we can say about Herodotus is that he went to some effort to gather information which was published as a collection of books called The Histories. Whatever anyone's thoughts are about the nature of Herodotus's work, there is no doubt that we have all used it to learn more about a number of different societies of the ancient world, whether they be Greek, Asiatic or African. However, when a historian also tells us that in Persia you could find ants that are the size of a fox that spread gold dust wherever they were digging their mounds, you are probably going to read his entire works with a degree of reservation. Even this, though, has been argued as a misinterpretation of the real-life animal known as the Himalayan marmot. Herodotus is viewed as a historian who was the first to report on things in an analytical fashion, a bit like what I'm trying to do now. In fact, my own attempts to report on history are done in a way that honours the traditional manner in which historians report history, with respect of cause and effect and discussing the catalysts and possibilities. Herodotus is widely regarded as the first historian to write in this manner, and as such is the inspiration of future historians and indeed, of course, this very podcast. Often, the other historian discussed alongside Herodotus is Thucydides. 
we have to turn to Thucydides for our story of the Peloponnesian War because Herodotus did not live long enough to make any account of it. As we already know, Thucydides was actually involved in the Peloponnesian War on the side of the Athenians as a general. He was also the general who lost the influence of the city of Amphipolis to the Spartans and ended up being exiled from Athens as a consequence. Thucydides would eventually write an account of the Peloponnesian War which would read as a much more factual account of real events, unlike the works of Herodotus which were interspersed with mythology and questionable advice. Thucydides' reports of history did not include the interference of the Greek gods, for example. We don't know what ultimately happened to Thucydides in the end, but we do know that there are no historical accounts written that describe events after the year 411 BCE, just after the conclusion of the Sicilian expedition of the Peloponnesian War. Thucydides' account of the Sicilian expedition, a complete disaster for Athens, was a balanced overview of events with thorough political and tactical analysis, giving Thucydides a reputation for being a scientific historian. Science So starting from mythology, we inevitably move along the path towards science. We can refer to modernisation of Greek thinking as the Ionian Enlightenment, due to the lands of origin of individuals who are regarded as the first advocates of rational thought in relation to the natural wonders of the world. It is important to state that rational thought is not something exclusive to Greek cultures, however, as we know that ancient societies of India and China also applied the same type of logic to the nature of nature also. Widely regarded as the man who was the original rational thinker of any kind of notoriety was a man called Phallis, who hailed from the city of Miletus in Ionia, on the west coast of Anatolia. He was alive at the end of the 7th century BCE and lived into the 6th century BCE. He is thought of as one of the original natural philosophers, and is often called the father of science. In reality, it appears that Thales was just a man with an insatiable thirst for knowledge and understanding of the world he lived in. Thales put forward the theory that all things were based on water, due to the fact that it could be easily witnessed in three states, solid as ice, liquid as water, and gaseous as steam. Although this might seem a bit daft in hindsight, the theory that all things are made from base materials is potentially the first allusion towards atomic theory and something developed on by later philosophers. Thales of Miletus was widely regarded as a great thinker and a celebrated Greek individual and alongside Solon of Athens was among the seven sages of Greece those regarded as the wisest men of classical Greece. Thales would be the originator of what would come to be known as the Milesian school of thought. His students would include Anaximander, 
who is one of the first names mentioned in this entire podcast series, as a man who suggested that fish are ancestral to humans in what could be described as the earliest evidence of a Darwinian theory. This was way back in episode one of the entire podcast series. A student of Anaximander was a man called Anaximenes, who elaborated on Thales' theory of water being the fundamental basis of all objects by suggesting that air was the fundamental element. Moving on from the Milesian school, we can discuss a man called Heraclitus, who was another Ionian philosopher from the city of Ephesus, which if you remember was the city of the great construction of the Temple of Artemis, which was built just before Heraclitus' lifetime. Heraclitus believed that the fundamental element was not water, as Thales hypothesised, or air, as with Anaximenes, but that it was fire. Heraclitus' theory was generally regarded as somewhat obscure, though. The next great philosopher of great note who had an opinion on the fundamental basis of all objects was a man from 5th century BCE Sicily called Empedocles. Empedocles was held in very high regard due to his work. In relation to the Ionian Enlightenment theories on the matter of the known world, Empedocles would claim that air, water and fire worked together with earth and that they were under the influence of love and strife and that this mixture of factors was the explanation for the differences and existence of all objects in the world. Empedocles also held high regard for the sanctity of life and so disagreed with the act of animal sacrifice, something that was commonplace in most ancient societies. This included the act of slaughtering animals for consumption and so Empedocles was reported to be a vegetarian. He was also interested in the work of the 6th century BCE Ionian philosopher Pythagoras. Pythagoras is more well known for the Pythagoras theory of calculating the length of the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle, something often taught to school students during their mathematics syllabus. While Pythagoras was a philosopher who had a great interest in mathematics, it is probably unfair that his legacy is dominated by a simple geometric law, which is highly likely to have been a well-known law before his lifetime. If we're honest, the mathematical abilities of societies such as the Babylonians around a thousand years before this time were far in advance of simple geometric equations. Despite being an Ionian from the island of Samos, Pythagoras actually migrated to Croton at the south of the Italian peninsula, which explains how Empedocles, as a Sicilian, would have become better exposed to his theories. Although we have no written evidence of Pythagoras' work, and although many of these pre-Socratic philosophers utilised mathematical principles, later philosophers would cite Pythagoras as an inspiration on their own ideas. Socrates, 
Earlier in this episode, we spoke of the comic writer Aristophanes. Aristophanes produced a comedy play in 423 BCE called Clouds. The play mocked the real-life philosopher called Socrates, who was regarded as a controversial character. What we know about Socrates was written by his students and admirers, as he made no written records, just the same as Pythagoras. Socrates would force the existing society to question its morality by challenging the conventional way of thinking. Socrates' ideas were so radical, but were also celebrated by his followers, and so much so that it would change the very idea of philosophy to the point where everything previous to him would be described as pre-Socratic. Athens was a vibrant, wealthy and modern city with advanced methods of politics and highly skilled artisanry. The people of Athens, influenced by the aristocracy, celebrated aesthetic beauty and human perfection as the greatest and best-looking athletes were rewarded and admired. Politically, Athens was advanced with its forward-thinking democratic inclusiveness. Everybody in Athens knew that their existence and their ways of life were underpinned by Greek gods who were worshipped by the citizens. Socrates was not an athletic or good-looking man. Socrates recognised that Athens, even as a democracy, was still fundamentally institutionalised and that the conventional Athenian way of life was questionable. When a politician stood up and said something, Socrates would openly question it. Some would love Socrates for this. Others, understandably, would hate him. The Oracle of Delphi described Socrates as the wisest man in Athens. But Socrates didn't claim to be wise. He just challenged others who claimed to possess wisdom. Socrates was quite elderly when Athens fell to the Spartans at the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War and Socrates was ready to denounce those politicians to whom he felt that blame could be apportioned for Athens' ultimate failure. The problem for Socrates is that he was challenging Athenian convention, which was held as something inherited from the creation of the Greek gods. So it would be quite easy for those looking to target Socrates to accuse him of mocking the gods and perverting the minds of young Athenians who looked up to Socrates as someone to follow. With no personally written thoughts, Socrates' story had to be reported by his followers and one in particular was called Plato. Plato describes how Athens turned on Socrates attempting to brand him as a disruptive influence on the city, while Athens was also quite possibly looking for people to blame for their embarrassing demise. Socrates was accused of his crimes against Athens, but refused to ask for forgiveness, standing firm by the fact that he had done absolutely nothing wrong other than challenge what others claimed to be the truth. He was sentenced to death, in 399 BCE and due to his firm position in his own mind 
willingly drank the poison of the hemlock and accepted that death was a better option than compromise of his position. Plato was around the age of 30 at the time of Socrates' death and rather than be a figure of controversy within Athenian society like Socrates, Plato decided to set up a school of philosophy so that the Socratic ways of thinking were being developed in an institutionalised environment and hopefully therefore not upsetting too many people by asserting opinions onto others. Plato's school would be called the Academia and was founded in 387 BCE. The Academia became an admired institution that would be preserved after Plato's lifetime. Plato and his students would philosophise about all aspects of humanity, including human emotions and the nature of human behaviour, continuing the enlightened discussions of Socrates. It is from Plato's name that we get the word platonic, as in platonic love, which is a form of love alternative to romantic and something that was typical of the emotions being discussed and debated within the Academia. One of the more famous students under Plato's guidance at the Academia was a man called Aristotle. Aristotle would found his own philosophical educational establishment at a place called the Lycaon. And this venue would ultimately be a place that Aristotle would transform into an educational establishment for all subjects, whether it be economics, theatre, poetry, logic, biology or even politics. Aristotle himself would write a number of academic books across a range of subjects, all taught at the Lycaon. Still prominent was the subject of philosophy and distinct branches of philosophy were emerging as the rhetoric, debates and theories became deeper and more diverse. Debates on whether life should be lived in search of the enrichment and fulfilment of the individual mind as opposed to the more dutiful existence as a contributor to society alongside your fellow man and accepting your position. This kind of deep thinking would develop and to a degree still be politically and ethically debated around the world to this very day. Some say that this is the birthplace of Western philosophy, but I do believe that this is a very lazy analysis and at the risk of sounding like Socrates is a bit of an urban myth. Those who know a good deal about the history of education will know that during medieval times the Islamic world would be a dominant front-runner in academia and it would be ignorant to say that this wasn't influenced by those Greek societies. However, Greek academia surely has to have been a product of Asiatic ideas that were clearly around in places like Babylonia centuries before. When you look at the wonderfully and highly complex design of the pyramids of Egypt, to my mind it is impossible to be ignorant of there being a higher level of academic thought and understanding in those ancient societies who were around hundreds and hundreds of years before the Greeks. If I'm wrong about that, then yes, it was probably aliens. 
the classical thought of philosophy attributed to the times of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle represent a great milestone in the journey of academia and represent one of our earliest understandings of the history of philosophy as an academic study. At the conclusion of last week's episode about the Battle of Leuctra, we left a little teaser about a young prince from the Greek-speaking lands of Macedon who was being held captive in Thebes, but also where he would be receiving a valuable education. The young prince's name was Philip, and this was in the 360s BCE, when the Academia was firmly established. Philip went back to Macedon, where he would become the king in 359 BCE. But he would be aware of his great contemporary, Aristotle, and in 342 BCE, before the age of Aristotle's work at the Lycian, Philip would send for Aristotle to visit Macedon in order for him to be a tutor for his 13-year-old son, Alexander. That is a story for another episode. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that one. A little bit of a diversion. It really does seem to uh, thicken up the source of ancient Greece there. So we were happily telling the chronological story, but I think that really adds a bit of substance to what we've already heard and we can maybe get a little bit more into the mindsets of ancient Greece and what Greece actually meant to people who lived in those lands. What was going on? The advances of society uh, during that time and the kind of things that Greek people enjoyed, the things that motivated them and the things that made them into the great society that we look back on um, from this modern day. And we sort of reached a very important point in the story now, so I was very careful not to venture too far down the line into what we call Hellenistic culture. And Hellenistic culture was instigated by a change in the political landscape of the Greek land. So previously we were talking about Athens and Sparta and Thebes. Now Thebes is the dominant power, but it's about to be uh, under challenge. And we'll find out more about that next week. Um, I'd like to give out a thank you to uh, Gitesh, who is now making contributions towards the upkeep of the History of the World podcast and as such is now a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Um, I received an email from a gentleman called Beda Mirzai Gaziklay. I'm bound to have pronounced that name wrong. Uh, he's put, Dear Chris, I would like to tell you about the opinion of an Iranian researcher, a master of ancient Iranian languages named Feraydan Jonadi, who holds, uh, sorry, he holds that Iranian mythology is more than several thousands of years old and that the Iranian mytholo- mythology characters have a hidden meaning. According to him, women symbolise geographic places like cities and landmasses or the like, and the heroes like Rostam. Uh, symbolise Aryan tribes and certain names in the Iranian mythology before the heroic age symbolise periods of life 
in the Aryans. According to him, who has extensively studied the Persian mythology and history for more than 50 years, Aryans migrated to the lower warmer lands of the Iranian plateau much longer before what the mainstream historians imagine. He holds that the migration is as old as the last ice age. Western scholars uh, do not believe that any country with a united nation and a government existed in Iran more than 5,000 years ago, unlike John Adi, who believes that the name Iran came to be used around 6,000 years ago. I'd be more than happy if you let me know your idea. Regards, Bedad. Well, as I always say, with anything like this, a fantastic email. Well, I love love the email. It's on a subject that we rarely discuss. Um I think it relates a lot to the uh, the story of the migration of Indo-European languages from way back in episode twenty-eight of volume two. Um, it's that um, it's that thing about the Aryan migration, isn't it? Um, because we know that it has to be linked in some way to the uh, migration of uh, the Indians, who were the first sort of uh, the scribes of the Vedic um, scriptures. Um, and uh, the inventors of Sanskrit writing, for example, the Sanskrit language. Um, and then also it has to be in some way related to the uh, the migrants into uh, into Greek lands who bought uh, Mycenaean Greek language and Linear B writing system, and uh, also the Hittites, uh, who we believe were of the same language family, who um, pressurised the Semitic speakers of uh, the Mesopotamian lands and, and the Arabian Peninsula. Well, um, goodness me, I mean, there's a lot of theories that going around about the, the migration of Indo-European languages and the migration of the Iranians. Of course, the, the honest answer is we don't know. Um, the Avestan texts that uh, relate to the origins of Zoroastrianism um, play an important role in that story as well. I'd be very, very interested to know in anyone's opinion about Iranian, um, the the establishment of of the Iranians as a as a race of people. We certainly know that um, the Persians started out as a very small um, nucleus of people uh, within what were what used to be Elan. And then, of course, it exploded uh, into what would become the Achaemenid Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. Um, I'd be very interested in people's opinions about this. I, I do believe that it, there could have been um, some kind of suppression of the truth by Western historians, of, particularly of the 20th century, the 19th and 20th centuries. Obviously, there was always um, a huge motivation for Western um, scribes or historians to try and write favourably towards Western civilizations, and and likewise, um, you know, the Eastern civilizations would have opposed that themselves with their own biased writings. And um, it's only now, really, we're in the twenty first century that we can probably um, try and revise all of that kind of thing and and get nearer to the truth, which is what I think we're all. Gen generally interested in. So if anyone has got any theories about the origins of Iran, the Iranian people, uh, the Iranian language, 
Um, I'd be very, very interested. Um, the fact of the matter is, Bedad, I've got no idea. I can only read out the theories and, and probably give you my opinion, which, I, I, in my honest opinion, I think they probably did migrate um, out of um, the uh, the Russian steppe. Um, I, I think the Kurgan theory is quite plausible, but then I just don't know. I wasn't there. Another email from Rick in West Yorkshire. He's put, hi, Chris, been loving the podcast. I'm a big fan of history podcasts. All the usuals, Dan Carling, Mike Duncan. Got to say you're right up there with them. That's a fantastic compliment, uh, Rick. Thank you. I didn't think I would like the prehistory stuff and was looking forward to the ancient stuff, but I've got to say I loved it. Your accent took some getting used to. I haven't seen a picture. I see you as Sean Locke which adds another dimension anyway. Keep it up, thanks. Uh, I've got nothing to add to that, Rick. Thank you so much for a great email. What what have we got here? Hello from Orange, Australia, from JJ Tig um, from Australia. Hi, Chris. Love the podcast, and as is with most of your feedback, I find your accent and meter perfect for passing on information. Well done. Just finished listening to the late Bronze Age collapse. Do you think that this may be related to the huge volcanic eruption at Santorini? Volcanic eruptions have caused major climate change issues and crop failures in the past. This may also be attributed to the stories of Exodus with famine and disease spreading throughout Egypt. Keep up the great work, Jimmy. A fantastic review, and it? Almost like he's, he's popped a question in there as well, which uh, can't blame him for that. Um, well, look, I mean, I'm not going to go on too long. This episode's going on and on and on. But, I mean, it's an interesting theory about Santorini. Um, I think um, Santorini is probably dated maybe to like two or three hundred years previous um, to the late Bronze Age collapse. And therefore, for that reason, I'm not sure that it was the the reason for the late Bronze Age collapse. I tend to think of Santorini as it could be the cause of one or two things. It could have, if it was early, it would have been around 1600, 1550-BCE and could have contributed towards the struggles of the Hittites when they had to turn to iron in the absence of bronze. Um, But I think it's more likely to be um, an event that happened during the 15th century BCE that caused the balance of power to switch from the Minoans in the Mediterranean to the Mycenaeans. So the Mycenaeans maybe took advantage of the Santorini eruption. And then, of course, after that, their um, their culture flourished um, and it didn't really decline until after 1200 BCE. So I'm not sure uh, that Santorini was contemporary and I think uh, maybe, uh, personally, I find it hard to turn away from the sort of the NASA findings of there being a, a likelihood of a, a cluster of earthquakes uh, between sort of 1225 BCE and, and 1175 BCE. And I think that sounds like a great catalyst for the chaos that ensued in the aftermath so that's what my feeling is but of course once again I wasn't there Um, I've only read what I've read and I'm being very interested if other people have got a different opinion to me so please 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 do write in and uh, 
we we have a discussion forum on the go at the moment. If any of you are uh, isolated at home and uh, you know you're you're not able to work or or leave the house at the moment, come along to the History of the World podcast discussion forum. You can access it through the interact section of the History of the World podcast dot com website. And uh, let's start a discussion. Let's all join in a, a discussion and start talking about history. If we all love history, that's a great place that we can all go. Come along and tell me all your theories about um, the the downfall of Athens. Is a post that's on there at the moment. The downfall of Athens, and uh, we can also discuss the origins of Iran. We can also discuss the catalyst for the late Bronze Age collapse. All fascinating subjects, and I'd love to hear your thoughts and feelings about all of those things. Well, I'm going to leave it now for this week. Uh, Next week, we're going to be looking at the rise of Macedonia. So it's a really, really vital part of history that we're approaching now. Um, So don't miss that episode. Until next week, look after each other, stay safe, and uh, we will look forward to happier times. Let's... uh, Look forward to next week as well for another episode of the History of the World podcast. Take care of yourselves. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.